Welcome to Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment. Hi there, ladies and gents, and welcome to this, your next dose of the Sophisticated Property Investment podcast with me, Frank Flegg, the founder of Ethical Property Partners. And today we have Amanda Jarvis-Doyle. We're talking about heads of terms Cool. So why have you chosen this topic, Amanda? Why do you think this is a cornerstone, an integral part of sophisticated property investing? So um, we've just had two days with our franchisees. We've just been doing masterminds on their businesses. And this is a topic that was raised. And also we've just had a full day of planning and going over the next quarter of our franchisees' businesses and planning and helping them organise and get ready for the quarter ahead. What often happens is that people come across a situation that they're not really sure how to monetize. It doesn't fit our usual below market value purchasing system, and they get confused. They know that it might fit within a heads of terms, but when it comes to writing the heads of terms, they are not 100% certain as to what to put down. So we covered it yesterday in detail and really gave everybody a good overview of what the imperative parts of a heads of turns needs to be. And coming from the perspective of who are we writing the heads of turns for? So are we writing them for us? Are we writing them for solicitors? Or are we writing them for the vendor? That was something that kind of, we. I think a few people had an aha moment yesterday. I think one of the biggest aha moments, to uh, use your uh, phrase, was that for 90 to 95% of transactions, you don't need a head to terms at all. I think that was a res- revelation for, for people. Now, for regular listeners of the podcast, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper and jot down the two different types of sophisticated property investing deals. There are only two types. And if you haven't got a pen or a paper, think to yourself, we're going to go quiet just for a few seconds and think to yourself, what are the two different types of deals? Because it's very easy to sit there and be passive and think, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've heard that before. And oh, yeah, that makes sense. But not actually to engage. And so in true Tony Robbins style, challenge yourself. What are the two types of deals? There are only two types of deals. And one of the answers we had yesterday was um, good ones and bad ones, <laughs> which I really liked. <laughs> it came from Lee, I think, yesterday. Yeah, but I like that. But in terms of technically, what two t- different types of deals there are? Give everyone five seconds and then uh, you, can, uh, you can answer it for us, Amanda. In our business, we have a purchase, a below market value purchase in most cases. Um, so that's one. The other is where we control now, but we pay later. And that's it, guys. There are only two types of transactions in sophisticated property investing. You either buy now at a discount or you control the property now and you pay for it later. And of course, with the control now, pay later, you can pay market value, you can pay above market value. You can do it BNB as well. But those are your two options. And when you start thinking about it really simply like that, it becomes really, really clear what you need to do when you have agreed a solution with a vendor. And we went around the whole room and asked, you know, what percentage of sophisticated deals do you think you will be doing in your business? In terms of all the deals you do, how many will be control now, pay later? How many will be below market value purchases now? And in my business over the last 14 or so years, 
it has been about 90% BMV pay now. So buy the property now, pay a below market value price and about 10% control now, pay later. And I'm quite happy with that ratio. It's it's a good ratio because it means that the majority of my deals are really simple, which means they go through. The majority of the deals that I do get the property into my name on land registry now. Ownership is nine-tenths of the law, and so having the property in my name is far safer than keeping it in someone else's for a long time. And the number of steps to go from agreeing the deal to monetizing the property are fewer with a below market value purchase because you go from yes mr smith we can solve your problem we can pay you this much we can we can buy your property in the next four weeks six weeks eight weeks to instant sign up there and then signing up all of the solicitor's paperwork so you've got property information form fixtures and fittings you've got your revocable agreement your option agreement you've got your um, basically everything other than the contract of sale and tr1 we basically do everything on day one the majority of paperwork is all signed up in the first time we've ever met the vendor i'm just thinking about all the deals that i've done and i've literally only done three deals in my time where i've needed to choose heads of terms that's fascinating isn't it? and you've done tens and tens of deals and made millions of pounds <laughs> literally <laughs> in terms of a bmv purchase it's a very simple sign up process you do all the paperwork that you possibly can it goes to the solicitors the solicitors issue contracts and tr1 they get signed and completion takes place now if you're getting lending there's a few more steps if you ask your solicitors to raise inquiries then that's going to delay things further but basically if it's a cash purchase and you choose not to raise inquiries and choose not to do searches which i have done in the past some of you listening will think hang on a second that's so risky no, it's not risky. Not risky if you know what you're doing. Not risky if you're buying it at a low enough price. Not risky if you know your gold mine area well enough, etc. So it can be an incredibly short and incredibly swift completion. I think my record to date is six days from agreeing the deal to completion. That's 90 odd percent of your transactions. The other 10%, a below market value purchase now is not going to work for the vendor. And that's where you need a head to terms. So first mistake people make is they sign a head to terms and put an unnecessary additional step into a simple below market value purchase. And the problem with that is it elongates the transaction. It makes it more complicated than is necessary and it gives the vendor a far greater likelihood of solving their problem elsewhere and not selling to you. And it's normally used incorrectly in a straightforward below market value purchase when the investor isn't fully prepared, when the investor hasn't got all the paperwork in hand, doesn't know their sign up process, doesn't actually know how to close a deal. And people, <laughs> people go, of course I know how to close a deal. If someone offers to sell me a 200 grand house for 150, of course I know what to do. <laughs> and then you go, okay, I'm a vendor. You've just walked around this house and it's worth 200 and I've said yes to 150. What are you going to do next? Well, I'm going to, um, uh, uh, I'm going to phone my solicitor. What, while you're in front of me? No, no, no. I'm going to go back to my office and phone my solicitor. Okay. What's going to happen in the in the meantime? Well, um, I'll get a heads of term signed and that's it. It's like a crutch. It's like a, well, it, it feels like I'm doing something. But a heads of terms isn't legally binding. It's a 
weak psychological commitment to do something. But using it when it's unnecessary just increases the likelihood of the deal falling over. So that's the first point. Don't use heads of terms if at all possible. The second point is because you're only doing this in a very small number of transactions, in your case, three, Amanda, over how many years of investing? Eight eight years of investing so what's that one every two years yeah I think I've signed more than that on who heads of terms Frank and that's um that was really interesting when when I was coming across it um I've signed way more than that but they haven't completed uh, and we were discussing that yesterday because it introduces complexity and many vendors can't cope with that level of complexity on the podcast previously we've covered the complexity conundrum you can listen back to the uh, the podcast on that or you can go look at the youtube video on that but the complexity conundrum is something that most investors are completely oblivious to and it scuppers more deals than you can shake a stick at so yeah absolutely the likelihood of deals where you use head to terms falling over are quite high that doesn't mean you shouldn't use them. It just means that you should only use heads of terms when the deal really is complicated enough to use them. And where a a standard, I say standard, it's still a sophisticated sign up, but a standard sophisticated sign up will, uh, will work just fine. So the reason I think heads of terms are stuffed up so often, and they really are, I've seen some absolute ridiculous ones is because you're only doing them very infrequently. If you're doing three and eight years, Amanda, you can't possibly be as good at them as you would be your telephone fact finds, of which you're probably doing one a day on average and getting really, really proficient really, really quick. And so I think in this podcast, it'd be really useful to go through the main elements of a successful head-to-terms document. So do you want to kick us off, Amanda? What what do you think jumped out at partners and members yesterday in terms of, ah, oh, that needs to go into my head-to-terms and, ah, oh, that mustn't go in? Interestingly, somebody said to us, so do we have a template we can use? That was one of the biggest things. And it was like, no, you need to be writing this with the vendor. That was a huge one that jumped out because it's an agreement If you go with a template, it's already dictated to the vendors to what the terms are going to be. And what you want is a collaboration. So as you're writing the heads of terms, as you've got your pen and paper handy, and it's probably a piece of paper and a pen that the vendor's going to go and get from the kitchen or a drawer that they have, is sitting down with them and collaborating with them to agree what those terms are going to be. That word collaborate is so important. We did it as a role play yesterday with Ryan Brazier, who has been on the podcast. You might remember the vivid image we drew for you of someone, I think we ended up calling it Ryan, but I don't think it was Ryan, (laughs) sitting on the sofa in his boxer shorts, um, (laughs) eating junk food. I seem to remember was the image that we conjured up for those of you that have listened to the whole back catalogue. But Ryan's a very successful investor. I think he's in his fourth year now with EPP. Um, has done some really lucrative, sophisticated deals and has used heads of terms extensively. He did a role play for us yesterday and we critiqued it. The whole room critiqued the role play of of a real deal that had already completed. But in terms of how you would write the heads of terms, what you'd put on them, what you'd say to the vendor, et cetera, 
that was one of the the things was that that Ryan did amazingly well. Ryan absolutely nailed it, which is a very hard thing to do, you know, walking into a fake sign up, giving the information there and then, and then to sit down and just slip into flow and be critiqued by a whole room full of sophisticated investors. But he did it. And that's where that level of unconscious competence is absolutely um, evident. You know, we've talked about the competency matrix previously, and that starts with unconsciously incompetent and goes all the way around to unconsciously competent. And you can go back and listen to the episode on that. But for me, it's absolutely a joy to see a partner who four years ago wouldn't have known what to put on ahead of terms run through it almost in exam conditions and absolutely nail it and when you say collaborating between the investor or collaboration between the investor and the vendor that's what we saw yesterday with Ryan Ryan moved his seat around the table to sit on the same side as the vendor asked the vendor for a pen and paper and and you might think oh that's not very professional I would take my own pad I'd have a pen or a bit like the, and it's interesting, the question about, do you have a template didn't come from a partner. It came from someone doing their four month trial. I would have been surprised if it had come from a partner, but I wasn't surprised it came from someone doing their four month trial because the lack of understanding about the process. So if you go, oh, and here's my template for this, you're selling now, they're going to pick holes in your heads of terms. Now a heads of terms is necessarily brief. It's necessarily clear and concise and simple because the lawyers will make it plenty complicated yeah. later yeah. on <laughs> turn that one document into 25 pages exactly and take like two months on it but that's for the solicitors to do and so what ryan did was by asking for the pen and asking for the paper you show look we're on the same side here let's draw this up together so what have we agreed is going to happen and this is where you get onto what's in the document so You're absolutely right, Amanda, the settings, everything, the approach, the positioning, what went on the document that you think was a surprise to some of the partners or or what didn't go on? I think the lack of detail that went into the document surprised some of the partners. So we didn't say, this is when you'll receive that, this is when you'll receive the other. We didn't necessarily put exact amounts in because they're variables that might change as we go along purely because of how the deal might be constructed. We didn't make it sound as though it was legal speak. It wasn't what we termed as legalised. Simple language, I think that's probably the, the easiest term to describe it. Simple language, just basically outlining what we were agreeing. So who was involved, the buyer and the seller? What could be expected so how much they're going to receive in total I think that's probably the one figure we did put in so that they have some certainty the main thing is is keeping it simple and putting the basic facts in and not going into too much detail with it we got the heads of terms down in front of a whole room on six bullet points and you think six bullet points no way it's a 15 year agreement (laughs) it's a quarter of a million pound house and it's like yeah but you can still boil it down to to six bullet points and what people think is yeah but what if this happens you know what if you die what if the vendor dies what if the house burns down all of that is dealt with by the solicitors the solicitors legalize and formalize the whole agreement you're absolutely right amanda but our job is just to get down on paper as simply as possible the 
essence of what we've agreed. And then we both sign it so that there's a psychological commitment to this and so that the solicitors can see we're on the same page. And it's little things like you leave the agreement with the vendor and you might think, well, hang on, there's only one agreement. We've just written it together. How can I leave the agreement with the vendor? That's the one that we've both signed. But you're not going to hold them to it. It's not legally binding. You can just take a photo and send the photo via email to the solicitors so that they've got it to work from. And the vendor feels amazing that they've got this document in their hands and they know what's going to happen. So let me run through the um, the bullet points that are on the heads of terms. Amanda, you've already said, you know, the parties involved. So we put that in with the purchase price. So Frank Flegg will buy Mr. Smith's property for X amount of pounds. That's the first bullet point. Nice and simple. This is how much they're getting. Second bullet point is Frank Flegg will pay X amount of deposit upfront. So this was a vendor finance transaction over 15 years. The vendor was giving a 97% mortgage. So vendor finance for 97%, deposit of 3%. Amazingly, it's a fixed rate mortgage, interest only, over 15 years. So basically, you buy the house for 3% of its value now. And then you service the interest over 15 years, uh, pay off the balance in 15 years time. Well, of course, in 15 years time, you can flip the property, you can refinance it, etc. Because it's gone up in value so much. That's the, the idea behind it. And that was at market value, by the way, we purchased this at market value. So got the purchase price sorted. Uh, we've got the deposit, the 3% deposit that's written down. That's bullet point two. Bullet point three is this agreement will run for 15 years. And at the end of the 15 years, the principal amount, so the 97% mortgage, is repayable in full. The fourth bullet point is for the duration of the 15 years, every month this much will be paid, so the interest payment. I think we fixed it at 3% for 15 years. Fifth bullet point is just like any other mortgage, and this is important, just like any other mortgage lender, because we want them to realise this is normal, the loan will be secured with a first charge on the property. And then we talked about it and we said, actually, they won't know what a first charge is. So we'll just say with a charge on the property. Most people understand that the mortgage company has a charge on your property. They might not know the word charge, but we decided that that was a good compromise and it tells the solicitors what to do. And finally, number six, we decided to put in an anticipated completion date, but then to explain to the vendor that we couldn't absolutely promise that because it was down to the solicitors and how quickly they worked and how quickly the vendor returned their questions, etc. And so bullet point six was we anticipate completion to be on, and I think we gave it six weeks because we're entering the summer period. Uh, we didn't want to raise expectations. We thought we could say six weeks and be ready to do it in four. And also the vendor said they needed some time to empty their house and move house. And so that took the pressure off the vendor. So those were the six bullet points. And then we just drew two lines, wrote our names under them, dated them and signed it. And that was it. And people get all hung up on, well, it's not word process. You know, I can imagine some novice investors going away and saying, I'll write this up and then I'll post it to you. What a ridiculous idea to slow down the process of, of buying this property. It doesn't need to be word processed. It doesn't need to be neat and tidy. It needs to be legible and it needs to be in the solicitor's hands as quickly as possible. So if you've taken your photo, you can email that to the solicitor when you're sat in your car five minutes later. You know, the solicitors can be working on it by the time you get back to the office. Just to interject there, Frank, emailing vendors is a really common mistake. So emailing paperwork to them, communicating via email with vendors is a really common mistake. Um, people think that it's official and it's efficient, but this is where 
relationships break down because a bit like you can send a text and it really depends on how somebody's feeling as to how it's received. You can intend it in one way, but somebody can read it and, and interpret it in a completely different way. You can't read somebody's reaction to an email. It's the same when you're sending any paperwork to a vendor. A, a simple phone call um, to say, can I pop round and just sit down with you? I've got, I've got some more paperwork that needs filling in. Or they phone us often and say, oh, I've had some paperwork arrive from the solicitors. I'm really not sure what to do with it. I'm absolutely perfectly fine with going over and sitting down with them and helping them fill in the paperwork. And I know that there's a real resistance from people on our franchise, um, you know, on the partnership, sometimes to to get in the car and drive to do that. And they'll be like, I'll email, email it to me or, or and I'll have a look at it and then I'll send it back to you. And, and I get really frustrated. I'm like, no, <laughs> get in the car, drive. How much is this deal going to make you? You know, is it going to make you 30K? Okay, is it worth a drive over to the vendor to sit down with them and just go over this? Or are you going to risk losing it because you're going to email something to them that they're not really sure how to fill in or they could then pass to a friend and their friend goes, oh, I'm not sure whether you should fill that in. Say that, or they ask a friend's advice because they haven't had the help from you. They go and ask help from other people they know. Yeah. And what's the likelihood that the other people are going to be better at explaining it than you are? <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a really common mistake. It, it's something that we're, we're really keen on is to maintain that relationship throughout um, and you can't maintain that relationship if you haven't started with it. Well, it's a people business at the end of the day, isn't it? And I was just thinking as you were talking about emails, I can't remember a successful deal where email was a major component of communication. I can think of loads of unsuccessful ones that compl- that, that failed because it you know boiled down to facts being emailed backwards and forwards. But normally that's when the transactions hit the rocks and and the the vendor's not very happy they resort to email because they could be keyboard warriors then and uh and tell you how they feel when they're really angry whereas when you're on the phone and you're actually saying i'm so sorry about this you know we can't control the mortgage lender and i'm so sorry they've chosen not to lend on this but i'm now jumping on it and i'm gonna i've I've already arranged a new valuation i've already submitted a new application with a new lender we've asked the solicitors to expedite it because of your delays because of the delays to your transaction already we know that you're in a hurry because of xyz when they hear that sincerity in your voice or can see it in your face when you're face to face with them it dissolves the anger It, it makes them realize you're still on the same team whereas if you send an email saying that because you're a coward and you don't want to front up to the fact that you are causing them distress through your lack of professionalism, your lack of um, ability to deliver on the service you promised, then it is going to degenerate. The number of times I've seen email chains and I've just thought, oh my goodness, by email 10, it's a lost cause. You know, this is going to be so hard to recover. And I have done it. I have recovered deals for partners where I've said to the vendor, I said, look, I can see that you're very upset and I completely appreciate why please may I pop over with the purchaser, you you know, the franchisee, the EPP partner, so that we can have a coffee and talk this through and get it resolved to your satisfaction as quickly as possible. And if you don't want to proceed after we've had a coffee and you want to walk away, that is absolutely fine. There'll be no financial penalty. We won't hold you to any agreements that you currently have, but would you give us half an hour to have a coffee? And I have rescued some like that where they can see, you know, oh, Frank is sincere. 
you know, the partners involved, Frank, and um, for him to come from headquarters to, you know, my little house to reassure me, yes, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, I'll give you another four weeks, you know, etc. I have managed to do that a few times, but notice it's taken it from email all the way back to face-to-face <laughs> where it should have been in the first place. And the number of transactions where it's degenerated into email, and I just think, oh, no. And you read the email train, you go, that first, by the time it gets to email 10, it's too late often. Uh, I've got an update from you. I've spoken to the solicitors today. Please can I pop around this afternoon and grab a coffee with you just to update you. If that was the first email and then they popped over to see them, that would have been so much better and so much easier. But yeah, fascinating, isn't it? And it all starts with that positioning up front. This is the heads of terms when I'm now going to send this off to the solicitors. They're going to legalize it. That might take them a few weeks, but don't worry, I'll be chasing them every couple of days. I'll keep you updated. And then once they've turned it into a proper agreement that will think of everything, every eventuality that you and I can think of will be in this agreement. They'll probably turn it into 10 or 20 pages, but we'll go through it together. We'll make sure it's exactly what we've agreed today. Notice the we, we're on the same team. It's a partnership for sure. Exactly, exactly. It's a partnership. We often use the term, you know, we're a team from today. We're a team. We want to work on the same team to get this through as quickly as possible. And the point was made, I think it was made by you actually yesterday, Amanda, is that a purchase on a control now pay later basis where you're using your heads of terms it's just a joint venture it's a joint venture with the vendor was it you Mm -hmm. that said that um i think it might have been (laughs) i remember (laughs) very honest of you not to take credit yeah yeah that was me frank yeah all the good stuff that was said (laughs) (laughs) um the other time we use heads of terms we're focusing in on vendor heads of terms here and securing properties and purchasing properties but the other time you do heads of terms is when you have a joint venture with uh, another investor all joint ventures require a heads of terms and then most heads of terms will be formalized by lawyers and, and turned into contracts so yeah I think keeping it really simple telling the vendor then what's going to happen so it's then going to go to the solicitors if we're both happy with it we'll sit down we'll sign it and then we'll complete it really is as simple as that and then you deal with the complexity and this came out yesterday don't try and impress the vendor with all the hard stuff you're going to do play down what you're going to do make the thing sound so simple so the lawyers will do their bit we'll both sign it and we'll complete they don't need to know that you've got to you know sort out stamp duty that you've got to sort out a a loan for the deposit if you're going to borrow the deposit and of course you can borrow a deposit if you're doing vendor finance because you're not constrained by normal mortgage terms and conditions etc so you've got lots of important stuff that you're doing one of the most important things that you need to do when you're in that head to terms meeting is work out the deal before you start writing the head to terms. You cannot be working it out whilst you're writing it. And it was interesting, Amanda, yesterday, about half the room didn't understand the deal. Did you notice that? Half the room were nodding and going, yeah, I get it. I get it. So you're putting down 3%. The vendors are getting 97% in 15 years. Half the room thought it was an option agreement where we took control of the property and then we completed on it 15 years later. Only half of the room realized that we were completing now. Actually complete on the deal, yeah. Exactly, and paying the mortgage off later and giving them a charge on the mortgage and the vendor giving us the funds to complete now. Half the room didn't understand that. And that's really important. And that's the difference. And we talked yesterday about the difference between when you're in a dance with a partner and you're being led so when there's a leader it's very easy to dance and relax and think you're good at dancing 
And that's the same as sitting in a seminar going, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's clever. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I understand how that deal works. It's very different than to sit in front of a vendor and the vendor says, so this is my situation and there's no one to lead you. There's no one to, to, to tell you how to do it. You have to work out to do it. That's the equivalent of being the leader in a dancing couple and having to work out what steps coming next and what's happening after that and where in, on the dance floor you are and are you going to bump into someone else and what's the other person going to be doing when you're doing this. It's a new level of thinking and planning and understanding sophisticated property investing and that's and I, and I actually made the mistake yesterday I said you can't phone a friend and then I thought actually you can you can phone us <laughs> and that, yeah. that often happens we often have partners and members say you know we're going into a help visit where I think we're going to sign it up but it's quite a complicated one I'm going in at 10 and I should be done by 12 can someone at headquarters be available for those two hours in, in case I need to step out and give you a call and, you know, the number of deals where we've we've made the deal work because we've been able to offer that uh, availability or if it's really complicated and they um, really need the help, we'll send a mentor and the mentor will go and spend a day with them. So, yes, it needs to be really simple. Yes, you need to have those key five, six, seven bullet points on there that explain the whole deal. Yes, it needs to be signed. Yes, you need to leave it with the vendor and send the photograph to the solicitors yes you need to explain to the vendor what's happening next but also you have to make sure a you understand the deal or understand the solution that you're putting in place for the vendor but b make sure it solves the vendor's situation that was interesting um amanda we did the partner round table so we spent a whole day focusing on each partner's business and really went into detail and one of the transactions that came out of that was one where the vendor was selling a property to someone else at full market value but was part way through a self-build of their next home and the sale of their current home had fallen through and we had to go through all of the solutions to rescue the self-build and some of the solutions didn't work and so the partners presenting those, if they were sat in someone's front room and hadn't thought enough chess moves ahead, you have to think all the way through the transaction, like to 10, 20 years time and go, yeah, that works for me, works for the vendor. Yes, you might have an urgent thing. And in this case, I think the vendor needed 70K in six weeks. But it's no point giving them 70K in six weeks if then you haven't worked out what step two and step three is. Because after step one, either you could be stuck and losing money or they could be stuck and losing money and so that forethought all the way from the TFF when you're chatting to the vendor on the phone and understanding their problem for the first time all the way through your preparation for the help visit like most help visits you should walk into with the solution already sorted out like how many help visits do you go into where you change your solution while you're there Amanda? Oh very few um, and it's literally only if the vendor kind of pulls something out of the hat that you but I'm a week from bankruptcy yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've had that before exactly Um, yeah yeah. um so yeah it's literally only if if something crops up during that help visit we have a, a a form that we fill in before we go into a help visit and we've worked out what our offer is going to be before we go in and I photograph that because uh, we don't take it in with us, but I photograph it, keep it on my phone, and then I'm work- when I'm I'm working out all the figures, um, I just re- refresh my memory as to what I'd actually written down before I I went in, and make sure that I'm on the same page. 
you know, we say every day is a school day, Amanda. I've never thought of that before. I've sat memorizing the numbers <laughs> or now because the rule is you don't take, you know, pre- prepared materials in other than the valuation that you're going to share with the, the vendor, but you don't take anything for yourself. Oh, how clever is that? Take a photograph. And then when you're on your calculator working everything out or the vendors nipped out to make a cup of tea, you can have a look at your prep. That is a, that's oh, gold dust. Oh, I think I'll finish working for today now. That's, <laughs> that's enough learning for me. I once uh, was sat in the audience of a seminar. The presenter said something and someone stood up and said, that's amazing. I'm off. And the presenter said, what do you mean? They said, I've got as much value as I need from this seminar. I'm off. <laughs> they left. <Wow. laughs> they were like, that was, that's the nugget I need. Thank you. Which always made me laugh because I thought, yeah. well, what about the other 10 you might get? But yeah, I'll let you wrap up now, Amanda. I'm done. See you later. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Frank. <laughs> um, I really thought you were going to go then. <laughs> um, it's something that I always recommend to um, people when I'm mentoring them as well, is is to take a photograph of that sheet so that they've got it to hand so that they can, you know, they they know exactly where they should be. One of the many, many reasons you're an amazing uh, country owner for uh, EPP, Amanda. That's awesome. I think we've really done a good job there of explaining head to terms and the the pros and cons and the, the situations in which to use them, what to put into them. Is there anything we've missed off or you think would be valuable to the listeners, Amanda? I think one of the things that we perhaps should cover, Frank, is why do we make people sign the, or why do we why do we get a signature on the heads of terms? People were people were kind of a little bit resistant to that yesterday. It was like, well, it's not a legal document, so why are we getting people to sign it? And I think when we covered it off yesterday, it was like, ah, yes, I understand now. That was another aha moment for people. Um, so I think maybe we should cover why why we do get a signature. Uh, I don't know the answer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Because if you're not going to rely on it, why bother doing it? It's psychological, isn't it? It's commitment from the person. When the person says something, so, and this is in any sale, in any conversation, if someone says, I believe this, or yes, I will do this, it's a level of commitment. When someone writes it down, and this is why we're writing it together. So this is why you don't say it and then seek agreement you go so what did we say we said um 15 years and we have 15 years and you write it collaboratively they're saying it so they've not only agreed to it now they're kind of writing it but then when you put your signature to it and it's dated and now it's it looks like a contract we've not called that called it that we've called it a heads of terms but basically it is now a contract between the two of you. Only psychological, I wouldn't bother trying to enforce it. You know, if someone doesn't, if someone changes their mind or solves their situation in a different way before uh, we get our solution in place, then that's, you know, part of the game. Um, and it does happen and, and it happens increasingly likely with with the increasing complexity of the transaction. But yeah, just getting them to sign it. I think it's when the mate down the pub says, cool, they've got a good deal. I could have given you or I'll give you a bit more than that. They can turn around and say, do you know what? Unfortunately, I've signed. I've signed an agreement. I'm committed now. And they might know that they're not, but it's a good excuse to give the friend or to, you know, if if someone's trying to helpfully be a red flag person and talk them out of something. Um, The number of people that give advice that's poor advice for the individual is, is unbelievable. And the individual might know that, but they might not have the vocabulary or the understanding or the... They might not have the confidence to actually debate with the person and, and and argue their point, but it's really simple to say, well, it's a done deal now, I've signed. And it's true, they have signed. 
and it is a done deal. And it's so much stronger than Handshake. Absolutely it is. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Guys, hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you're loving the sunshine and that you're taking action. This is, you know, there's no better time to invest than right now. The Chinese have a saying that the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. And it's the same with your property portfolio. Don't wait a year. Don't wait two years. Don't wait until the recession's kicked in. Don't wait until property prices have corrected. Start now. Every single property I've bought and hung on to, I'm glad I bought at that time and not later because they've all gone up in value and, and properties do. They've made me money over time. Even the ones that at the start didn't make me money have now made me money. And so, yeah, take action, guys. If we can help you with that, if you want to come on one of our seminars, um, how often are you running seminars, Amanda? Every month at the moment. There you go. Guys, until next time, happy investing. Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment.